from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Yeah, I mean, this, I, as you say, the, the educated friend, he was able to kind of land in this safe landing spot where your father had been told there'd be room for him. He was cast out. Yeah, yeah, and, and he never saw it quite that way. Yeah. He understood the necessities. I mean, that, that's the big lesson of me writing this book was the difference between even what you can reason or emotionally reason about what survivors are thinking or feeling. I was so often wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that didn't keep me from feeling that sometimes uh, my father's judgments weren't, weren't quite right. I'm Sarah Fetsky. As a child, Jason Summer knew many family members who'd survived the Holocaust, including his own father. But he also knew about Shmuel, an uncle who didn't make it. Jason's father's brother was killed by German guards as he made a desperate attempt to escape the cattle car that was taking him to Auschwitz. More than five decades after Shmuel's death, Jason Summer and his father Jay returned to Eastern Europe on a fact-finding mission. Their trip from Ukraine to Auschwitz provides the frame for Jason Summer's new memoir. It's called Shmuel's Bridge, Following the Tracks to Auschwitz with My Survivor Father. Jason Summer is a St. Louis-based poet, and he joins us today. Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So, Jason, I'm hoping you can orient us a little bit. Your father was born in a part of the world where the borders have shifted quite a bit in the past century. Can you tell us a bit about your family's roots? Uh, It's in what's now the Ukraine. Um, And it was an area that was Austro-Hungary. The the Munkach joke that you always hear, that's the, the, The uh, the main town. Um, is that, you know, I was born in Austro-Hungary. I, you know, grew up, I was bar mitzvahed in, in, uh, in Hungary, uh, in Czechoslovakia, and then I went to Hungary, and oh, and you traveled to, and then the Ukraine, naturally, for, for burial, I guess. Um, and uh, the, the joke is, of course, the person never left the precincts of the town of Munkac, which has been passed around endlessly. Yeah. And so this was your father's hometown. Um, What was going on there in those, you know, the 1930s, the 1940s? Um, It was mounting anti-Semitism. The uh, area had come under Hungarian control and they were allied with the the Reich, the Third Reich. And um, Jews were systematically excluded from education, though that that wasn't a big issue with my father because he was from a very, very poor area, globally okay. poor. Yeah. Um, and uh, then late, late-ish, because this is the Hungarian Holocaust that my father was um, taken up in, and his brother, uh, likewise, his two brothers. And um, that was late in the day uh, in terms of, it was really 1944, and, and a very great concentration of people died Uh, in the summer of 1944. Yeah, I mean, reading up on this a little bit, it was almost shocking how late this came in World War II, but then when it came, just how fast and violent it was. Nearly 500,000 people were were killed um, in the space of around eight weeks. Wow. From starting in May 1944. Okay. So this is some really dark, dark history. And you grew up with so many family members who had survived this, endured this, also so many that that had been lost in this. But your father's brother, Shmuel, his story looms so large in this book. What made him so central 
to your thinking and, and I guess your family conversations? He was, he was a hero to me. Uh, first, first of all, a kind of resistance, uh, even though it wasn't a successful resistance, an escape attempt when so many had gone to their deaths without a choice, really, without enough calories, without enough means to resist. But he managed to resist. And he was a figure from my father's childhood or from my father's family who, you know, was the greatest loved of my father and the greatest mm-hmm. loss of my father. And I identified with him as, you know, I, I title myself the least tough kid in the Bronx. So here was a, an uncle of mine who was tough, um, defended my father, even though he, were, he was younger. And um, he became a sort of image of, of manhood to me mm. uh, at a time when the idea of, you know, Jewish macho was a silly, <laughs> it's a silly phrase, even now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I feel like we hear about Israeli commandos and, you know, there's this whole sort of flip side of that. Right, but. right. The normalization somehow of, of the, the Jewish people. Yeah. Um, but as you were growing up, this was sort of the symbol of like, th- this was a guy who did the bold, daring thing. He did not go quietly into right, the night. Right. And and oddly enough, my father would um, say I was like him mm-hmm. uh, physically, or I was, I would joke like him, or, or um, there were times when he even missed misnamed me mm-hmm. um, and would say Shmuel's name rather than mine. And um, so the identification was enforced in, in some sense. Uh, so, so this was something that this figure loomed very large in your childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and by 2001, you were ready to sort of dig into this story a bit. Uh, how good, I guess, how good were the eyewitnesses of this story? I mean, you knew a fair amount of what had happened. Yes. Um, of course, uh, Shmuel entered that railway car with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And um, she happened to have survived. And anybody who survived really uh, inscribed the stories in their minds. They knew they would be bringing back important information if they were fortunate enough to come back. So everyone, of course, paid attention. Um, So we had some... A sense of reliability about the uh, about the witness, and you had a few important clues as to sort of when and where this had happened, but not nearly enough to figure out exactly That's when right. and where. What did you know going into this trip? Um, we knew around the time it was a few hours before arrival at Auschwitz, but of course the train um, speed was variable, and there were stops, um, and we knew something about terrain. Um, which which uh, made us think of a certain route rather than another. There were some possibilities even in the in the larger sense of which which rails. Uh, so there was topography. There was witness testimony, uh, and there was research. Uh, you did a lot of research. I did do a lot of research. Uh, what are some of the sources you drew upon as you're trying to figure out where did he make this this desperate leap? Well, the. Uh, there are a number of books now. A man named Roz has done something about, um, oh, I can't remember the title of the book, about uh, Munkach and the deportation specifically from that ghetto. Uh, but there were German sources, too, the uh, uh, Auschwitz uh, Kalendarium, uh, which listed, actually, it's not a good translation in English, so I had to sort of poke through and ask for, ask for help to see when transports left and when they arrived. 
and you could dope some things out th- through that. And then the rest was terrain. Uh, naively, almost, I thought, we get on the tracks, we get on the right tracks, we, f- we look at every bridge <laughs> and every river, um, and we'll, we'll find it. Because you knew from this eyewitness, the girlfriend, right. uh, that he had jumped at a point where they were at a bridge, and it was a river that you could jump into. Right, and, and survive the fall mm-hmm. and have to swim. And there were, there were all these uh, moving parts that had to align. And interestingly, there, it eliminated – having those details eliminated a lot of places. Yeah, um, and you're sort of so you're following these these rail tracks through some of the worst things that have happened in I think it's fair to say human history, just sort of step by step by step. That must have been a very heavy trip. It it was. Um, I think I cover in the book how my father went into and out of memory. Yeah. Um, I was terrified before the trip that I I would fail him in some way that I wouldn't be able to comfort him. Uh, even as I urged, this, even as I felt my own need to find answers to this. And, um, but I, I found, uh, there's one, one incident in the book where we were walking through a square where he saw an execution. It was after he was liberated uh, by the Russians and he was walking back into to Budapest. And, um, you know, I was terrified because he, he this was a, an event that impressed him very deeply. Uh, uh, two, it happens to be they were uh, Hungarian uh, Nazis. Yeah, these were the were, bad guys who were being executed. Um, he'd had his fill of death by, yeah. that, by that point. That's actually a, a point of contention between my father and I, 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 and I think it has to do with, with well, many things. But I, I was happy at hearing about the executions, you know. These yeah. were men that, that killed hundreds. Yeah. Um, but I was afraid that it would there would be this rush of memory through the octagon, um, that square, the convergence of roads. And he he didn't do that. Yeah. Um, so he was able to, I, I guess as you have to as a survivor, to control, if you can, um, the surge of memory. Um, yeah, I mean, what was interesting reading about your journey, and there's so many interesting pieces and digressions as this journey continues, just sort of getting closer and closer to Auschwitz, trying to figure out where this thing happened. At some points, it seems like you're the one driving this. You want these answers. At other points, it's your dad. Right, right. Yeah, that that was a very interesting, for me, even to look back on an interesting part of the, the journey because I, I had felt all my life so much the recipient of these stories and sometimes the recipient of the fallout from survivors who had tough lives and <clears throat> were damaged uh, badly sometimes. And, and it was a way of being an adult for me, to take some agency, to do the research. I think my bookishness of use, you know? Yeah. And and, um, uh, I was then able to to feel like I was participating in some way, joining the story at the end. Um, I'd often felt that I was the end of the story. I was told in a way, you know, rather directly that your compensation in some sense, everything was taken away from us. This is what we get, children. Yeah. And <laughs> no pressure in that. No, no. And I was bad compensation, let's face it. You know, <laughs> they, could, they all could have done better. Uh, but yeah. so you're on this journey, and you were able to get some answers. And not just, and I don't want to give away everything in this book, but you were able to find what you're reasonably sure was the bridge and also the date, which is, is something very important. Yes, yes. 
But that wasn't the hardest part because there was a, you know, there, there were just a few days. The journey should have taken, I don't know, 12 hours, but it took two, two nights, three days. So. Yeah. Um, so, so that was pretty well defined. It, it was really the, the matter of how far they had come and what they had covered. And as I said, landscape was a tremendous help with that. And so once you found what you, you feel pretty sure is the answer there, does this help you understand Shmuel's story in a way that when you were a kid and, and you couldn't see these things for yourself, uh, that it was sort of just outside your glance? I felt that throughout the, the whole trip, that I was seeing things that my father had seen. Um, I was at his birthplace, literally, a, a little hamlet outside of Munkach. And um, I just remember walking, coming down that hill and, and seeing how rural it was and and how urban my childhood what I was, and I, I, I thought, how different we. Of course, we're so different. Uh, even absent the horrors my father went through, mm-hmm. um, and he did go through horrors. Though he's an omnivorous Holocaust survivor, you know, he he escaped and and uh, he was on the run for for a while. He was also in labor camp. You have to escape from somewhere, and he escaped from labor yeah. camp. And then he was unwillingly. Uh, conscripted as a volunteer, an unwilling volunteer in the Russian army, uh, which was another harrowing experience. So we're going to talk a little bit more about your father's experience after we take a quick break. We're talking today to Jason Summer. His new book is Shmuel's Bridge, Following the Tracks to Auschwitz with My Survivor Father. We do need to take a quick break. We'll continue this conversation when we come back. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. We're talking today to the St. Louis-based poet Jason Summer. His new memoir is Shmuel's Bridge, Following the Tracks to Auschwitz with My Survivor Father. It's a really great story, a very hard story, um, but an important story. Jason talks about with his father retracing the steps uh, that his uncle would have taken that so many family members took from their village in what is now Ukraine uh, to Auschwitz. His uncle jumped um, in an attempt to escape that cattle car, ended up being shot by German guards. Um, Jason, you were able to find the place. That was a big deal for you and your family. But your father's story, what's so interesting to me is that Shmuel's story really captivated you in part because he escaped. Your father also escaped. Yeah. Um, and of course, I'd heard so many of my father's stories. And I I wanted so much, as I said before, to get closer to some sense of Shmuel. Um, so, so I, I knew and was treated to all my life, um, my father's adventures and suffering, uh, yeah. cause they were both f- 
for for him. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to minimize the suffering at all. I mean, this these were some terrible things that happened. But the story of him escaping from this labor camp, there's almost a, a bit of puckishness to this. Like he and his friend kind of like go, you know, they managed to pull this off. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was fraught in the doing and afterwards because he was um, – offered a place in a, a blind professor's house to hide because they, they were hiding to uh, meet the Russians. And there turned out to be no space for him. And uh, so he was on his own in the midst of Nazis, you know. And he, he had to um, somehow uh, get away and stay away, as it were. And um, that was very... Very difficult. And, and his friend that helped him with, the, you know, these two work together in this escape. And he always spoke so fondly of this friend. You had a little bit different take on this friend. Uh, yeah. And, and my father, this is just an, another one of those things my father wouldn't, wouldn't appreciate about this book. Um, but, uh, yeah, I thought class differences and the differences in um, – my father was bo- born into a, a very religious family, and, and uh, an emancipated Hungarian Jew, which his friend was, would have been from another world in a way. And I felt that my father was much more attached to this handsome, educated guy than that fellow, uh, Naiman Imre, or uh, was attached to my father. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, I, as you say, the, the educated friend, he was able to kind of land in this safe landing spot where your father had been told there'd be room for him. He was cast out. Yeah, yeah. And and he never saw it quite that way. Yeah. He understood the necessities. I mean, that, that's the big lesson of me writing this book was the difference between even what you can reason or emotionally reason about what survivors are thinking or feeling. I was so often wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that didn't keep me from feeling that sometimes uh, my father's judgments weren't, weren't quite right um, yeah. about, about Imre. But so your father's story is remarkable. Not only did he manage to escape and survive on his own, and then you say he was, he was pretty much conscripted into the yeah. Russian army, which is itself, I mean, that's a harrowing experience. Especially for a Jew. Yeah. Uh, especially for a Jew. And a Jew without any training, or um, but my father now and, and then knew a lot of languages. Just the region he came from required, you know, Ruthenian and Hungarian, and he it was Czech at the time he was born. It, there was a lot of linguistic ability that the Russians needed, and he had enough Yiddish and to to manage the German that the Russians needed uh, uh, out of the German captives that they that they kept. So all that uncertainty in the, in the borders of where he was from, that may have been what saved his life. As did his early malnutrition. He, uh, when, when others suffered from the lack of food, it wasn't, it wasn't as great a suffering for my father who was used to it. Oh. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, a, it's a strange gift, that is. A strange yeah. gift. So then he ends up, and this is such a, you know, his, his story deserves so much more time than yeah, what yes. we have today. I want to encourage people to read Shmuel's Bridge and, and learn more about your remarkable father, Jay Summer. He ended up in the new world, finds a new life in New York. He ends up being named New York State Teacher of the Year. He ends up National yes. Teacher of the Year. This man is a survivor in so many senses of the word. Abs- absolutely. And, of course, he was on the commission, the Excellence Commission, Reagan's commission, um, for, uh, uh, I think they, pro- they produced a nation at risk. My father was the only teacher who wrote that, who was a part, 
participant in, in that. And he went around working for the Department of Education and um, touting the, the work that they had done. So yeah, he's, he's also a, an American success story in a way that may not exist um, very uh, widely today. You know? And he's now 98 years old. He is. He is. And he's, he's still in good health. He's, he's in good health. He, his memory is impaired. Yeah. Which was part of the impetus for this for this book. I wanted to preserve some of his memories and, and more importantly to me anyway, uh, our interactions on this journey um, and the stories of living with the stories of survivors. So that is one of the really intriguing things about this book to me is you take this cinematic journey in 2001. Um, you're a writer. I imagine you had all sorts of ideas and images in your head. You ended up waiting 21 years to publish this book. Did you wait 21 years to write most of it? Um, I've written, I write narrative poems principally. Yeah. And there's lots that I've covered in poems. Uh, but, you know, about poems, it not, people aren't flocking to, but you can, you can tell, you can push my poetry books too, but nothing will happen, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to I try this here. Audience, I need you to, to follow <laughs> us right. into this, this poetry journey. But. <laughs> right. So, so I, I had covered some of those stories. Um, and uh, so this was a, a rehearsal and, and a way to, to uh, explore it in different ways. Poetry is, no matter if it's narrative or not, it's compact. Yeah. And I was able to follow many more of the strands here that, that led to the sort of crisis points in, uh, in, in, that I've written about in poems. Yeah, um, to tell this story in a way where it's unfolding as it unfolded, you, you needed prose for that. I did, really. Um, and was that hard for you as somebody whose your primary form is, is poems? Um, no, it, it wasn't that hard. It was entirely satisfactory, too. The experience itself. I'm a, a winnower, a bad winnower. You know, I'll write a whole day and have nothing for it, you know, be subtracting lines in the evening, you know, so till I'm very, down to zero. you're good at winnowing. You <laughs> yeah. almost winnow too far. <laughs> that's right. Well. The bad winnowers yeah. are the ones who leave it all on the page. <laughs> that's right. And this was much more a matter of accretion of the book gained day by day rather than gained and lost. So it it was an interesting experience. And I, I, I worked hard on the prose. Um, I, I wanted to be musical in some way as well. Um, one is one thinks of poetry that way, but I think of good prose that way too. It's rhythmic. So you waited, you know, there was sort of 50-ish years after your father left this area to this journey that you took. Then there were 20 years after you guys left the yeah. journey and wrote about it. Did that complicate it in some ways? You had to go back and re-research some things that you'd researched. That complicated it that way. And it also complicated it in terms of um, just talking about it, to weave three different, at least three different time periods, was um, something of a challenge. Yeah. I, I feel like I handled it naturally. I think you do, did. Do, do no, you mind I if actually I, do think you did. I, I think it's, I would have praised myself. Yeah, these, these strands come together so nicely. <laughs> and part of what is so clear in this is that, um, you know, in 2001, your father still had a, a sharp memory for oh, a lot of these things. That has changed so much. Right. And that then. lent an urgency uh, for me to, to, to take up this story and his stories and our stories together um, and preserve them while he was still still here, um, to at least know marginally that it was happening. Is he able to, if not read this book, hear this book? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Actually, you know, there are things, it's the whole story for me, including um, the miseries 
of it, yeah. um, of, of growing up in that kind of at- atmosphere. And, you know, my father just wouldn't appreciate the ventilation of family stories, you, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, this I, isn't and, the book he would have written. N- no, no, not at all. He might have had maybe just a more triumphant view of things. I, I feel like he, he this has, is bittersweet. He has a, a privately printed memoir that is very much the American story, triumphant, and, and glosses over or makes more palatable anyway some stories I knew in different uh, versions. And do you think he almost had to do that in order to maybe justify how everything ended? He needed to give his own story a happy ending. He tends to need to, you know, happify things. A lot of Any, us do. <laughs> anyway, but, but um, uh, yeah, I think there's a, tr- a truth in that. He just, he'd been in so many dark places. He didn't want to dwell in dark places. And he felt a responsibility, feels a responsibility as a Holocaust survivor to, to talk about the triumphant spirit of people. Yeah. Um, because we need that ability to believe in it. Um, and here you are muddying that, that narrative yeah, a little bit. I, I am. I what, what made you feel compelled to sort of do the more warts and all version of this, that say the heroic college-educated friend maybe wasn't quite so heroic, that kind of thing that, that makes us understand, you know, that the human nature cuts both ways? I just think the truth is important to me. And, and the truth with warts and all, I think, is more preventative than the shiny truth without the warts. So we're in a moment now where um, many people are, are deeply worried about a rise in anti-Semitism, a rise in intolerance of, of various forms. Do you hope this book can do something for that huge problem? I don't tend to be optimistic about these things, but I, I view it as, you know, one strand in a, in a vast tapestry that ought to be told, of stories that ought to be told, that make for a kind of net against us falling through, you know, into absolute atavism, you yeah. know. Um, but I don't know. I think all sorts of stories need to be told. Uh, we need to be aware, warts and all, of, of what we are, even the best of us, what we are uh, possibly capable of and need to guard or need to ride herd on ourselves, you know. Yeah, there's a good message there. Ride herd on ourselves. We could all stand to do a bit more of that. So this book has now been out uh, for a few months. What kind of reception are you getting? The most satisfactory reception is friends and old friends and people I haven't been in contact with for a while uh, writing how much they liked it. Um, and of course, it's gotten some really good reviews, including a you know, Publishers Weekly, which I am told is just really important. That's a huge deal. Uh, it's yeah. a huge deal. Yeah. You have to tell a poet these things. You know, rejoice. <laughs> and for people who are in that community of Holocaust survivors and descendants of Holocaust survivors, do you think they appreciate w- what you've set out to do here to get that, that unvarnished truth to be the cautionary tale, even while also the uplifting moment? Y- yeah, I... I don't know. There's uh, as many people in that community uh, individually will have as many uh, opinions as you can Im- imagine, and and there are people who don't want warts and all, want want the sainthood for the for the survivor and and uh, the memory of of survivors. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know. I really don't know. So this has been such a topic throughout your work. Um, you know, I think it, it informs the poetry, it informs this book. Now that you've sort of done this definitive account of this trip, do you think you'll write another book? Do you think you'll go back to, to writing poems? Do you think this will remain in some ways your subject? Um, I 
<laughs> I said on, on my father's Spielberg Holocaust interview, which I phoned in on, um, I said, I, uh, uh, unfortunately, I said out loud that I wished to somehow write my way through it and, and have done with it in some way. I'm writing poems now, and they're not uh, Holocaust-centered, and most of my work is not. There's a strand in it that I suppose will continue. Every time I say I'm finished, I, I discover that I'm not. <laughs> Well, Jason Summer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This has been fun. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.